Well, good morning, OCC. It is Super Bowl Sunday, and you know what that means, right? Tonight, the Kansas City Chiefs face off against the San Francisco 49ers in a rematch of the big game from just a few years back. But if you are watching the media, you might think that tonight's game is as much about the love story of Taylor Swift and tight end Travis Kelsey as it is about the bad blood between these two teams. Have I got any Swifties in the room? Oh, we do have some. Well, the media is enchanted with Swift, but if you ask me, it's a little overblown. Now, football fans, are you ready for it? Yeah. If you're not a fan, you're probably just asking, is it over now? And for all you Chiefs fans, I speak for the rest of us when I say you need to just calm down. Because we're all curious if you get exhausted rooting for the anti-hero Patrick Mahomes. Now, for those of us whose teams did not make it to the very end, we'd love a chance just to go back to December have another shot at the playoffs. But we're left waiting for August. And for whichever team loses tonight, their second place rings are going to feel about as special as paper rings, knowing all too well they have to face a cruel summer before the start of the next season. But the true competitors are just going to shake it all off and fill all that blank space between the seasons with hard work. And Swifties, if you know, you know. Well, if you're new to us, every year on Super Bowl Sunday, I offer some bad Bible interpretation, and it really is bad Bible interpretation, as a means of predicting the winner of tonight's game. And every year we discover that amazingly, the Bible actually does reference the teams that are playing in the game and gives us some clues to who might be the victor. So if you're a Chiefs fan, you have some reasons to be encouraged. Because First Peter tells us, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that never fades away. Some people think that this is an obvious indication that God is a Chiefs fan and they're coming away with the win tonight. And when you add to that Ephesians 2.20, this says Christ Jesus is the chief cornerstone. They say that's an obvious shoe-in for the Chiefs. I mean, Chiefs fans even refer to themselves as Chiefs Kingdom, which can sound pretty spiritual. But... My in-depth study of bad Bible interpretation led me to the Old Testament passage of Malachi chapter 3, which says he, referring to God, that God will purify them and refine them like what? Gold. So here, gold is the standard. It's the refined. It's the purity. It's the good thing. And we all know the 49ers are named after the gold rush of 1849. So this seems to be a nod in the Niners' direction. But perhaps the most striking clue to the winner of tonight's matchup is found in comparing the quarterbacks. Niners QB Brock Purdy is the lowest paid starting quarterback in the NFL, making less than a million dollars this season. While Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes is one of the highest paid QBs in the NFL, making more than 63 times the salary of Purdy. In fact, here's a fun stat for you. Purdy made about 50 grand per game. Mahomes made more than 50 grand per pass. Just saying. Further, Mahomes was drafted near the top of the first round in his draft class, while Purdy was drafted last in the last round of his draft cast, earning him the name Mr. Irrelevant. But we all know what Jesus says about situations like that. The last will be first, and the first 
will be last. Sorry, Chiefs fans. Sorry, Patty Mahomes. My, my guess is on the Niners. It's not looking good for the Chiefs fans tonight. Yeah, some of you cheer for that. I just made myself a villain with some of you. Now, in all seriousness, that's a terrible way to read the Bible, so don't do that. <laughs> that is bad Bible interpretation. But I do want to give a shout out to Niners quarterback Brock Purdy. Because I've been impressed with this guy's bold but humble faith. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' statement that the meek will be blessed. And Purdy seems to be the real deal who personifies meekness. He's an NFL quarterback contending for the Super Bowl championship. But yet, he does not take himself or his fame too seriously. In a recent interview, Purdy said this. I don't want to grab onto this life of fame and money thinking I'm a big deal just because I'm an NFL quarterback. I'm reminded of Jesus' words. Don't try to hold on to your life, but pick up your cross and follow me. Purdy went on to say, the minute we start chasing fame, money, and status is the moment we lose our life. But to deny myself and keep my eyes on Jesus and his promises That's where life is found. That's true life. That's a life worth living. And the only way to find life and save your life is in Jesus. Now, Purdy is not perfect. None of us are. But for a young dude, I'm proud of the way he's currently demonstrating the meekness that Jesus would encourage all of us to have. Well, in this Blessed Life series, we're listening in to the words of Jesus and his wisdom for how to be blessed. We're listening in to how he began the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus told us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. If you listened in last week, didn't Mark do a fantastic job explaining that one to us? Blessed by that guy. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The merciful will be shown mercy. But what is mercy? You may have played that game, Mercy, where you put your hands together and you're trying to bend the other person's hand back. And if you push their hand far enough, they got to scream Mercy before you snap their wrist. Or maybe you had an older brother like me and he put the arm behind you and made you cry for Mercy at some point. Or maybe is Mercy when your son's football team is running up the score on the opponent, even with the third stringers in. And the refs decide to run the clock because the score is getting too high. And they just want to end that game quickly and show some mercy to the losing team. Is that mercy? Is mercy simply showing kindness to somebody or having compassion for a hurting person? Well, the biblical picture of mercy is actually putting kindness and compassion in action. Let me say that again for you. Biblical mercy is putting kindness and compassion in action. One way that we could describe mercy is this. That mercy is when someone in a stronger position extends help to someone in a weaker position. When somebody who has power or has money or has position extends help to somebody who doesn't. When Calvin Coolidge was president of the United States, in the early days of his presidency, he was awakened by a thief in the hotel room where he was staying. Coolidge was, uh, was startled to find a thief rustling through his clothing and his belongings. And then he noticed in the thief's hand his pocket watch. So President Coolidge 
quietly and politely asked the young man, hey, you can have anything that you want, but would you please leave me that watch? It has a special engraving on it, which has deep sentimental value to me. Well, the thief was shot that the person in the room had awakened, and he stepped back. Coolidge then identified himself as the president, which shot the young thief even more. Coolidge went on to engage the man in quiet conversation and discovered that this young man could not even afford his hotel bill, could not afford his train ticket back to his university, and was having difficulty paying for his tuition at the university. So Coolidge made a deal with him. He said, young man, if you'll give me my wallet back, I'll give you all the money I have on me at this moment. I will loan it to you. And that way, I will save you from being a thief. And you can continue to be an honest man. Well, the thief gave him his wallet. Coolidge then handed the boy all the money from within, but on two conditions. He said, first, someday you got to repay this when you're able. Secondly, you got to go out the same way you came in so the Secret Service won't get you. (laughs) Well, years later, Coolidge received a letter from that same man. And included with that letter was a full repayment for the loan he had extended that night in the hotel room. Mercy is demonstrating help when you have power and the other person doesn't. But mercy also can be understood in this way. That it's when someone... Oh, let's go on to the next one. Mercy is also understood as passing up the opportunity to punish someone who deserves it. Mercy is when that person who has wronged us, we choose not to punish. When that person who has done us wrong and we have the opportunity to humiliate them or to give them their comeuppance, and instead we refrain and we choose to show kindness. When we don't cast judgment, when we don't punish when we don't humiliate the person who even seemingly deserves it. In the middle of last century, Richard Warmbrand was a pastor in Romania. In Romania, uh, was ruled by the communist government and Christianity was outlawed. Uh, speaking the name of Jesus could get you in a lot of trouble. So Pastor Wormbrand was thrown into a labor camp in communist Romania. And in this labor camp, it was illegal to speak the name of Jesus. It was illegal to own a Bible or to speak favorably of the Bible. It was illegal to speak favorably of Christianity. And oftentimes, the colonel who was in charge of this labor camp would come into the cell block where Wormbrand and the others lived, and he would beat and whip these prisoners just because. And he took a special liking to harming the Christians. Well, on one occasion, another prisoner had spoken the name of Jesus to another prisoner, trying to introduce that person to Jesus and invite him to a life of faith. And when the colonel heard about this, he was angered. He came into the cell block and he then whipped and beat every prisoner in that cell block because one of them had spoken the name of Jesus. Well, not long after that, the colonel himself was arrested by the communist government for crimes he had committed. He was a really bad scoundrel. And his punishment, they threw him into the same cell block where he had so cruelly treated the prisoners who were there under his control. They knew these prisoners would beat him, that these prisoners would exact their revenge, that they would torture him. They knew this was a death sentence, that those prisoners would kill him. And that would have happened when the Colonel was thrown into the cell block. The other prisoners came up and they began to beat him and harm him 
except for one. One preacher who was in that soul black, who had regularly been beaten and whipped by that colonel, stepped in front and cowered over the colonel to protect him. He saved his life. He even took the beating for the colonel. Why? Because the colonel deserved it? Not a chance. Because the colonel had somehow earned this man's favor? Nowhere close. But simply because this preacher knew of the mercy he had received from God, and he was extending that same mercy to another in hopes that he might introduce this colonel to saving faith. Friend, that's mercy. Could we do that? Could you do that? Think of the person who has most harmed you or most wronged you. Could you step between that person and their punishment and receive the punishment for them? Could you help that person who has hurt you? That's mercy. Perhaps the best way for us to understand mercy is to understand that it's simply mimicking God. That mercy is when we mimic God and give grace to those who don't deserve it. Grace and mercy are two sides to the same coin. Grace is when we get something that we do not deserve. That's heaven. We don't deserve heaven. God offers it to us. Mercy is when we don't get something we do deserve. So grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Like hell, that's what we do deserve. So Jesus extends mercy to pull us from hell, gives us grace to invite us to heaven. And the biblical picture of mercy is when we mimic God. Now, we all know that we live in a culture that is not mercy-driven. All you have to do is watch our action movies. Pretty much every action movie, they're out to get the bad guy, right? And we cheer, right? We cheer when Liam Neeson, Brian Mills, and Taken gets the bad dudes. We cheer when the good guy gets the bad guy. It's even in our rom-coms, right? When the nasty stepmom in Cinderella gets what's coming to her, right? We cheer and we're happy. That's vengeance, That's not mercy. We are not a society and a people driven by mercy. We're driven by judgment. If we're honest, all of us are pretty good judges of other people's sin. We we can pass judgment on the other person. Well, this is the punishment they deserve. This is the humiliation they've earned. This is what should happen to them. So we're really good judges of other people's sin. But when it comes to our sin... We make really great defense attorneys. We want to defend ourselves and play the victim. Well, you just don't understand. You don't have all the facts. You don't know the situation. Well, given my context, my sin really wasn't that bad. I'm not as bad as that person. And we can defend ourselves all day long, justifying all our sin while casting judgment on others for theirs. This was kind of what Peter was doing when he approached Jesus one day. And he asked Jesus, Lord, how many times do I need to forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Is it up to seven times? Now, we got to understand what's going on here. In the first century Jewish mindset in their culture, the religious leaders of that day had already given an answer to this. And the answer was three. Somebody wrongs you three times, you forgive them. But past that, when it gets to time number four, punish them. Be done with them. You only have to forgive somebody three times. So 
Pete is coming up to Jesus saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do one better than the religious leaders have said. Because the number seven in that Hebrew culture was a number of holiness. When we come across numbers in the New Testament and in the Bible, it's good to understand that oftentimes those numbers signified more than just a, an arbitrary number thrown out, that it meant something special in that culture. And in the Jewish culture, the number seven was seen as holiness. So Peter comes up and says, not three times, how about seven times, Jesus? Is that good? And Jesus responds to him, well, no, Pete. I tell you, don't forget him just seven times, but 70 times seven. 70. That's seven times what? 10. And 10 in that culture was viewed as a number of completeness. That was a way of saying that's total, that's full, that's complete. That's, I mean, it's kind of like if we say, man, that thing's a million miles away. We're saying it's so far, like it's just... Ten times something was a completeness, a fullness. So you have a number of holiness times a number of completeness, which incidentally you have seven times seven is 49. I'm just, seems like another nod, but in all seriousness, back to reality, Jesus is giving this picture and he goes on and says, therefore the kingdom of heaven. And remember, Jesus is all about the kingdom of heaven. He came to usher in the kingdom of heaven, to introduce people and invite people to be part of that kingdom, to be kingdom people. So here's this kingdom language. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, 10,000 bags of gold in that culture, well, that money in today's world would be like $5 billion. Billion with a B. If you don't think that's a lot of money, see me after service. I got some projects I'd like to talk to you about. Five billion dollars, right? Like there's no way this dude can repay that. Five billion. Jesus is using hyperbole, using language in the story. It's like, man, a number that cannot be repaid. And since this man was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, Jesus is not saying that this is the way it should happen. He's just telling a story and using things that are factual from that culture. And that day, if somebody owed a debt, that person could be arrested and thrown into debtor's prison until they could pay or indefinitely for not being able to pay. That person's family could be sold into servitude, like in dentured servitude. It was a step better than slavery, but you were a servant to somebody else to help repay that debt. All your possessions could be sold off and the money given to the person whom the debt was owed to. So this is the picture Jesus is giving. Well, at this, the servant fell on his knees before the master. He said, be patient with me, master. I will pay back everything. Boy owns five billion biggies. I'll pay it back. There's no way he's going to pay it back. This is so facetious. Like there's no way he's paying this money back. He can't. He's beyond bankrupt. He's beyond debt. So the servant's master laughs at that and says, no. But he took pity on him for begging. And he canceled the debt. And they let him go free. I mean, imagine if somebody owed $5 billion and the one who was owed that money said, we're good. We're good. I mean, what a generous act of mercy. So at this, the servant went out, and then he found one of his fellow servants who owed him about 100 silver coins. That's about 10 grand. Still a lot of money. But I think most of us in this room, given enough time, could repay 10 grand. I don't think anybody in this room could repay 5 billion. 
Again, if you could, come see me. But 10 grand, that's reachable, that's doable. Might be a stretch for a lot of us, but hey, we can repay the 10 grand. But he grabbed this other fellow servant and he began to choke him. He said, pay back what you owe me. And the servant, he fell and he said, I, I, I'll be patient with me. I'll pay it back. He begged and used the same phrase. And then this servant said, no. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. So when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went, they told their master everything that had happened. The master called the servant in and he said, listen, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Now this word debt, the Greek word that's used there, is a debt that cannot be repaid. This is beyond bankrupt. This is, this is, you owe so much that your life, you, you could work every day around the clock and you'll never repay this. That this is a deep debt. He says, I canceled all that debt of yours. Why? Simply because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which would be never. Jesus goes on, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Seems like a tough teaching, doesn't it? I mean, is Jesus telling us that unless we forgive another, unless we show mercy, we will not receive mercy, forgiveness from God? I think it's important for us to remember that this story was told in answer to Peter's question. Peter came and said, hey, Jesus, somebody wrongs me. How many times do I need to forgive him? Seven? Is seven good? Seems a good holy number. Forgive him seven times. And Jesus' response to Peter is, I don't know, Pete. How many times has God forgiven you? Pete comes, hey, how much mercy do I need to show another person? I don't know, Pete. How much mercy has God shown you? It's as though there's a direct correlation between experiencing the mercy of God and extending mercy to another person. A correlation between experiencing the forgiveness of God and extending forgiveness to another. Experiencing the grace that comes from God and expressing that grace to another. Later, in Jesus' ministry, later in the Sermon on the Mount, he showed his followers how to pray. That model prayer is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Some of you may have grown up in a church tradition where you said that quite frequently. Well, let's listen into how Jesus ends that prayer. It says, forgive us our debts. And again, this word debt is that same Greek word that's an unpayable debt. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. After this prayer, Jesus then offers commentary. Only one piece of commentary and only on one part of that prayer. And he says this. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins... Your father will not forgive your sins. 
Jesus is telling us if we don't extend mercy to others, if forgiveness stops with us, then the stream, the river of mercy from God will run dry for us. Now, you've got to get clear on what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is in no way saying that we somehow earn God's mercy or that we would earn forgiveness from God as though that were even possible. See, we don't give mercy to others so we can earn mercy from God. It's not like we give mercy so God will give it to us. It's not that we give so we can get. That's not how this works. It's the challenge of a Jewish Hebrew culture from 2,000 years ago and an American culture now and the language and cultural differences between the two, sometimes we can kind of miss what was going on in the Hebrew mind of that time. What Jesus is getting at is we give mercy to others simply because we have already received mercy from God. We extend mercy because we understand that God gave us mercy that we could not earn. And when we understand that God has given us mercy, then we can't help but give it to other people. We we become a pipeline. We become a conduit. We become a river of mercy that God's mercy flows to us and then through us to other people. It's like a little kid who's experienced something great and they want to share it with all their friends. Their dad built them a playhouse in the backyard. Like, you got to come see this. It's awesome. Like, come do this with me. It's, it's like hugging jello. And you squeeze it and it just splatters on everybody else. It's a weird example, I know, but like mercy just splatters out on other people from us. That's how it works. When you've received it, you can't help but give it and extend it. And what Jesus is getting at is this problem of if we fail to overflow the mercy of God, then there's probably a problem in our receptors that maybe we haven't actually received the mercy from God. Because if we're making other people earn our forgiveness, there's a pretty good chance we think we need to earn forgiveness from God, as if that were even possible. If we think that we need to earn mercy from God, we will make other people earn mercy from us. If we think we need to earn grace from God, we will make other people earn our grace. If we think we need to earn forgiveness, we will make others earn our forgiveness. Jesus is saying that's so broken. I mean, his hands are outstretched to demonstrate mercy. Like he's open-handedly trying to offer it to us. And the problem is our hands are so often clenched, holding so tightly to some broken form of religion, some religion that says, well, it's all about me. It's all about what I do. It's all about how good I am, all about how much better I am than that sinner over there. It's all about all the religious duties I've performed. God, look at me. And that's the absurdity of it all. I mean, Jesus begins the blessing statements talking about being poor in spirit, which means we recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt before God. He goes on to say that we, would, we should mourn our sin because there's no way we can repay. We need to understand that our sin grieves the very heart of God. And yet God still blesses us. We're so deeply in debt that there's no way we could repay our spiritual debt to God. When, when you're spiritually bankrupt, you have nothing to offer the king. You're a thief in the president's hotel room. You're a cruel warden thrown into the prison. You're in debt five billion big ones that there's no way you can repay. 
I mean, that's where we stand before God. And yet God is all about debt forgiveness. That's just who he is. He cancels the debt. He wipes it clean. A debt so great that we owe, and he just wipes it clean. God is so extravagant. It it seems he's even reckless with his grace. I know that's an uneasy term for some of us, but it's true. I I know it's true because he's invited you and me to the table. He's extended mercy to you and me. He's given grace, forgiveness to you, to me. Knowing full well we will misuse it, we will abuse it again and again and again and again. Knowing every day we will wake up the child of God. Every evening we return the prodigal child. Every day we need his mercy. So this brings us to this. How do we improve our mercy quotient? If God has indeed been so merciful to us, and if we are to be merciful to others, if we are to open-handedly receive mercy from God and then open-handedly offer mercy to another, how do we increase our mercy quotient? Well, it all begins with this. We remind ourselves how merciful God has been to us. If we really begin to grasp, I don't think we'll ever fully grasp, but if we can begin to wrap our minds around how merciful God has been to us, I don't think there's any way that we could withhold mercy from another. When we understand the grace that God has lavished upon us, I don't think when we're mindful of that, that we could withhold grace from another. I think if we're making other people earn our grace and our mercy and our forgiveness, then somehow we're missing the whole point of what God has done, of who God is, of how broken we really are, of how deep our spiritual debt is. How do we improve our mercy quotient? We remind ourselves of how merciful God has been to us. God has not only shown us kindness, he has not only shown us compassion, but God demonstrates mercy to us every single day. Jesus was a first century Jewish guy, a a Hebrew. And so for him to think of mercy, that the Hebrew word that would have come to mind is the word chesed. Chesed. It's a fun word to say. You can say it with me. Chesed. Try it again. Yeah, if you spit on the person sitting in front of you, you said it correctly. It's not merciful, but it's fun to watch y'all do it. So, yeah. Listen, Peter's got to get a little entertainment once in a while. So this word, no point in making you learn how to say it other than it's just fun. But this word to him meant, and to his culture, it, it, it was this concept of entering into somebody else's problem and pain and hurt. And entering into it with compassion and with kindness to help, even when they don't deserve it. I hear that again. That that Jesus, when he spoke of mercy, spoke of, of a mindset of entering into the pain and the problems and the hurt 
to help another who does not deserve. Isn't that the cross? Isn't that our God? Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that is our God. That's what Jesus did. I mean, he entered into, identified with us so he could enter into our suffering and suffer on our behalf to save us. And more than just all that suffering physically was the the spiritual suffering he endured, the brokenness with the Father. For the first time in the whole of eternity, the Son was ripped apart from the Father because of our sin. And Jesus did that for us in hopes that we would never be separated from the Father moving forward. What a beautiful thing. How do we increase our mercy quotient? We remind ourselves how merciful God has been to us. When you came in today, you grabbed the communion elements. For those of you online, and by the way, we're so grateful for those of you joining us online. We got friends joining us from Oregon and from Florida and from Illinois and from all over the place. And some of you joining us from just right around the corner who are homebound. So grateful that technology offers us the ability to share these sacred moments together. We're glad you're with us. And so you can grab your bread, your juice, what you have available. For those of us in the room, I encourage you to open up the bottom of the cup and hold the bread. And hold the cup in your other hand. With this bread and this cup, we have a reminder of how merciful our God has been to us. His body broken, his blood poured out in a beautiful display of mercy. These small little emblems that represent a great, big, everlasting, eternal, overflowing, never-ending, magnanimous, magnificent mercy of God. Friends, take and eat and remember the mercy of God for you. Take and drink as God's mercy overflows to you. Father, in this moment, we are overwhelmed with gratitude. that your mercy would flow even to us who are so undeserving. God, that your mercy would flow to me. God, far be it from us to ever withhold mercy or grace or forgiveness to another. But God, may your mercy change us. May the mercy you have shown us show through us to a world in such short supply and such desperation for mercy. God, may we be people who trade vengeance for mercy, who trade offering humiliation for offering grace, who trade punishment for forgiveness. 
May we simply embody your mercy. God, may we let go of any any empty religion, any clenched hands, thinking that there's something we have to do to earn it. And in this moment, with open hands, may we just simply receive. And we thank you, Father. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen.